Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight. I will be continuing the story, This Side of Paradise, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Code of the Young Egotist Before he was summoned back to Lake Geneva, he had appeared shy but inwardly glowing. In his first long trousers, set off by a purple accordion tie, 
and a Belmont collar with the edges unassailably meeting, purple socks, and handkerchief with a purple border peeping from his breast pocket. But more than that, he had formulated his first philosophy, a code to live by, which, as near as it can be named, was a sort of aristocratic egotism. He had realised that his best interests were bound up with those of a certain variant, changing person, whose label, in order that his past might always be identified with him, was Amory Blaine. Amory marked himself a fortunate youth, capable of infinite expansion for good or evil. He did not consider himself a strong character, but relied on his facility, learn things sort of quick, and his superior mentality, read a lot of deep books. He was proud of the fact that he could never become a mechanical or scientific genius. From no other heights was he debarred. Physically, Amory thought that he was exceedingly handsome. He was. He fancied himself an athlete of possibilities and a supple dancer. Socially, here his condition was perhaps most dangerous. He granted himself personality, charm, magnetism, poise, the power of dominating all contemporary males, the gift of fascinating all women. Mentally, complete, unquestioned superiority. Now confession will have to be made. Amory had rather a Puritan conscience. Not that he yielded to it. Later in life he almost completely slew it. But at 15 it made him consider himself a great deal worse than other boys. Unscrupulousness. The desire to influence people in almost every way, even for evil. A certain coldness and lack of affection, amounting sometimes to cruelty. A shifting sense of honour. An unholy selfishness. There was also a curious strain of weakness running crosswise through his makeup. A harsh phrase from the lips of an older boy, older boys usually detested him, was liable to sweep him off his poise into surly sensitiveness or timid stupidity. He was a slave to his own moods, and he felt that though he was capable of recklessness and audacity, he possessed neither courage, perseverance, nor self-respect. Vanity, tempered with self-suspicion, if not self-knowledge, a sense of people as automatons to his will, a desire to pass as many boys as possible and get to a vague top of the world. With this background, did Amory drift into adolescence. Preparatory to the Great Adventure the train slowed up with midsummer languor at Lake Geneva, and Amory caught sight of his mother waiting in her electric on the graveled station drive. It was an ancient electric, one of the early types, and painted grey. The sight of her sitting there, slenderly erect, and of her face, where beauty and dignity combined, melting to a dreamy, recollected smile, filled him with a sudden great pride of her. As they kissed coolly, and he stepped into the electric, he felt a quick fear lest he had lost the requisite charm to measure up to her. Dear boy, you're so tall. Look behind and see if there's anything coming. She looked left and right. She slipped cautiously into a speed of two miles an hour, beseeching Amory to act as sentinel. And at one busy crossing, she made him get out and run ahead to signal her forward like a trafficked policeman. 
Beatrice was what might be called a careful driver. You are tall, but you're still very handsome. You've skipped the awkward age. Or is that 16? Perhaps it's 14 or 15. I can never remember, but you've skipped it. Don't embarrass me, murmured Amory. But my dear boy, what odd clothes? They look as if they were a set, don't they? Is your underwear purple too? Amory grunted impolitely. You must go to Brooks and get some really nice suits. Or we'll have a talk tonight or perhaps tomorrow night. I want to tell you about your heart. You've probably been neglecting your heart and you don't know. Amory thought how superficial was the recent overlay of his own generation. Aside from a minute shyness, he felt that the old, cynical kinship with his mother had not been one bit broken. Yet for the first few days, he wandered about the gardens and along the shore in a state of super loneliness, finding a lethargic content in smoking bowl at the garage with one of the chauffeurs. The sixty acres of the estate were dotted with old and new summer houses and many fountains and white benches that came suddenly into sight from foliage-hung hiding places. There was a great and constantly increasing family of white cats that prowled the many flower beds and were silhouetted suddenly at night against the darkening trees. It was on one of the shadowy paths that Beatrice at last captured Amory, after Mr. Blaine had, as usual, retired for the evening to his private library. After reproving him for avoiding her, she took him for a long tete-a-tete in the moonlight. He could not reconcile himself to her beauty, that was mother to his own, the exquisite neck and shoulders, the grace of a fortunate woman of thirty. Amory, dear, she crooned softly. I had such a strange, weird time after I left you. Did you, Beatrice? When I had my last breakdown, she spoke of it as a sturdy, gallant feat. The doctors told me, her voice sang on a confidential note, that if any man alive had done the consistent drinking that I have, he would have been physically shattered, my dear, and in his grave, long in his grave. Amory winced and wondered how this would have sounded to Froggy Parker. Yes, continued Beatrice, tragically. I had dreams, wonderful visions. She pressed the palms of her hands into her eyes. I saw bronze rivers lapping marble shores and great birds that soared through the air, party-colored birds with iridescent plumage. I heard strange music and the flare of barbaric trumpets. What? Amory had snickered. What, Amory? I said, go on, Beatrice. That was all. It merely recurred and recurred. Gardens that flaunted colouring against which this would be quite dull. Moons that whirled and swayed, paler than winter moons, more golden than harvest moons. Are you quite well now, Beatrice? Quite well. As well as I will ever be. I am not understood, Amory. I know that can't express it to you, but I am not understood. Amory was quite moved. He put his arm around his mother, rubbing his head gently against her shoulder. Poor Beatrice, poor Beatrice. Tell me about you, Amory. Did you have two horrible years? Amory considered lying, and then decided against it. No, Beatrice, I enjoyed them. I adapted myself to the bourgeoisie. I became conventional. 
He surprised himself by saying that, and he pictured how Froggy would have gaped. Beatrice, he said suddenly, I want to go away to school. Everybody in Minneapolis is going to go away to school. Beatrice showed some alarm. But you're only 15. Yes, but everybody goes away to school at 15, and I want to, Beatrice. On Beatrice's suggestion, the subject was dropped for the rest of the walk, but a week later she delighted him by saying, Amory, I've decided to let you have your way. If you still want to, you can go to school. Yes? To St. Regis's in Connecticut. Amory felt a quick excitement. It's being arranged, continued Beatrice. It's better that you should go away. I'd have preferred you to have gone to Eton and then to Christ Church, Oxford, but it seems impractical now. And for the present, we'll let the university question take care of itself. What are you going to do, Beatrice? Heaven knows. It seems my fate to fret away my years in this country. Not for a second do I regret being American. Indeed, I think that a regret typical of very vulgar people, and I feel sure we are the great coming nation. Yet, and she sighed, I feel my life should have drowsed away close to an older, mellower civilization, a land of greens and autumnal browns. Amory did not answer, so his mother continued. My regret is that you haven't been abroad, but still, as you are a man, it's better that you should grow up here under the snarling eagle. Is that the right term? Amory agreed that it was. When do I go to school? Next month. You'll have to start east a little early to take your examinations. After that, you'll have a free week, so I want you to go up the Hudson and pay a visit. To who? To Monsignor Darcy, Amory. He wants to see you. He went to Harrow and then to Yale, became a Catholic. I want him to talk to you. I feel he can be such a help. She stroked his auburn hair gently. Dear Amory. Dear Amory. Dear Beatrice. So early in September, Amory, provided with six suits summer underwear, six suits winter underwear, one sweater or t-shirt, one jersey, one overcoat, winter, etc., set out for New England, the land of schools. There were Andover and Exeter, with their memories of New England dead, large college-like democracies, St. Mark's, Groton, St. Regis's, recruited from Boston, and the Knickerbocker families of New York, St. Paul's with its great rinks, Pomfret and St. George's, prosperous and well-dressed, Taft and Hotchkiss, which prepared the wealth of the Middle West for social success at Yale, Pauling, Westminster, Choate, Kent, and a hundred others, all milling out their well-set-up, conventional, impressive type, year after year. Their mental stimulus, the college entrance examinations, their vague purpose set forth in a hundred circulars as to impart a thorough mental, moral, and physical training as a Christian gentleman to fit the boy for meeting the problems of his day and generation, and to give a solid foundation in the arts and sciences. At St. Regis's, Amory stayed three days and took his examinations with a scoffing confidence, then doubling back to New York to pay his tutorly visit. The metropolis, barely glimpsed, made little impression on him, except for the sense of cleanliness he drew from the tall white buildings seen from a Hudson River steamboat in the early morning. 
Indeed, his mind was so crowded with dreams of athletic prowess at school that he considered this visit only as a rather tiresome prelude to the great adventure. This, however, it did not prove to be. Monsignor Darcy's house was an ancient, rambling structure, set on a hill overlooking the river, and there lived its owner, between his trips to all parts of the Roman Catholic world, rather like an exiled Stuart king, waiting to be called to the rule of his land. Monsignor was forty-four then, and bustling, a trifle too stout for symmetry, with hair the colour of spun gold, and a brilliant, enveloping personality. When he came into a room, clad in his full purple regalia from thatch to toe, he resembled a Turner sunset, and attracted both admiration and attention. He had written two novels, one of them violently anti-Catholic, just before his conversion, and five years later another, in which he had attempted to turn all his clever jibes against Catholics into even cleverer innuendos against Episcopalians. He was intensely ritualistic, startlingly dramatic, loved the idea of God enough to be a celibate, and rather liked his neighbour. Children adored him because he was like a child. Youth reveled in his company because he was still a youth and couldn't be shocked. In the proper land and century, he might have been a Richelieu. At present, he was a very moral, very religious, if not particularly pious, clergyman, making a great mystery about pulling rusty wires and appreciating life to the fullest, if not entirely enjoying it. He and Amory took to each other at first sight, the jovial, impressive prelate who could dazzle an embassy ball, and the green-eyed, intent youth in his first long trousers, accepted in their own minds a relation of father and son within an hour's conversation. My dear boy, I've been waiting to see you for years. Take a big chair and we'll have a chat. I've just come from school, St. Regis's, you know. So your mother says, a remarkable woman. Have a cigarette, I'm sure you smoke. Well, if you're like me, you loathe all science and mathematics. Amory nodded vehemently. Hate them all, like English and history. Of course. You'll hate school for a while too, but I'm glad you're going to St. Regis's. Why? Because it's a gentleman's school, and democracy won't hit you so early. You'll find plenty of that in college. I want to go to Princeton, said Amory. I don't know why, but I think of all Harvard men as sissies, like I used to be, and all Yale men as wearing big blue sweaters and smoking pipes. Monsignor chuckled. I'm one, you know. Oh, you're different. I think of Princeton as being lazy and good-looking and aristocratic. You know, like a spring day. Harvard seems sort of indoors. And Yale is November, crisp and energetic, finished Monsignor. That's it. They slipped briskly into an intimacy from which they never recovered. I was for Bonnie Prince Charlie, announced Amory. Of course you were. And for Hannibal. Yes, and for the Southern Confederacy. He was rather sceptical about being an Irish patriot. He suspected that being Irish was being somewhat common. But Monsignor assured him that Ireland was a romantic lost cause and Irish people quite charming, and that it should, by all means, be one of his principal biases. After a crowded hour, which included several more cigarettes, and during which Monsignor learned, 
to his surprise, but not to his horror, that Amory had not been brought up a Catholic, he announced that he had another guest. This turned out to be the Honorable Thornton Hancock of Boston, ex-minister to The Hague, author of A History of the Middle Ages, and the last of a distinguished, patriotic, and brilliant family. He comes here for a rest, said Monsignor, confidentially, treating Amory as a contemporary. I act as an escape from the weariness of agnosticism, and I think I'm the only man who knows how his staid old mind is really at sea and longs for a steady spar like the church to cling to. The first luncheon was one of the memorable events of Amory's early life. He was quite radiant and gave off a peculiar brightness and charm. Monsignor called out the best that he had thought by question and suggestion, and Amory talked with an ingenious brilliance of a thousand impulses and desires and repulsions and faiths and fears. He and Monsignor held the floor, and the older man, with his less receptive, less accepting, yet certainly not colder mentality, seemed content to listen and bask in the mellow sunshine that played between these two. Monsignor gave the effect of sunlight to many people. Amory gave it in his youth, and to some extent, when he was very much older. But never again was it quite so mutually spontaneous. He's a radiant boy, thought Thornton Hancock, who had seen the splendor of two continents and talked with Parnell and Gladstone and Bismarck. And afterward, he added to Monsignor, but his education ought not to be entrusted to a school or college. For the next four years, the best of Amory's intellect was concentrated on matters of popularity, the intricacies of a university social system, and American society as represented by Biltmore Tees and Hot Springs golf links. In all, a wonderful week that saw Amory's mind turned inside out, a hundred of his theories confirmed, and his joy of life crystallized to a thousand ambitions. Not that the conversation was scholastic, heaven forbid. Amory had only the vaguest idea as to what Bernard Shaw was. But Monsignor made quite as much out of the beloved vagabond and Sir Nigel, taking good care that Amory never felt out of his depth. But the trumpets were sounding for Amory's preliminary skirmish with his own generation. You're not sorry to go, of course, with people like us. Our home is where we are not, said Monsignor. I am sorry. No, you're not. No one person in the world is necessary to you or to me. Well, goodbye. The Egotist Down Amory's two years at St. Regis's, though in turn painful and triumphant, had as little real significance in his own life as the American prep school, crushed as it is under the heel of the universities, has to American life in general. We have no Eton to create the self-consciousness of a governing class. We have instead clean, flaccid, and innocuous preparatory schools. He went all wrong at the start, was generally considered both conceited and arrogant, and universally detested. He played football intensely, alternating a reckless brilliancy with a tendency to keep himself as safe from hazard as decency would permit. In a wild panic, he backed out of a fight with a boy his own size to a chorus of scorn, and a week later, in desperation, picked a battle with another boy, very much bigger, from which he emerged badly beaten, but rather proud of himself. 
He was resentful against those in authority over him, and this, combined with a lazy indifference toward his work, exasperated every master in school. He grew discouraged and imagined himself a pariah, took to sulking in corners and reading after lights. With a dread of being alone, he attached a few friends, but since they were not among the elite of the school, he used them simply as mirrors of himself, audiences before which he might do that posing absolutely essential to him. He was unbearably lonely, desperately unhappy. There were some few grains of comfort. Whenever Amory was submerged, his vanity was the last part to go below the surface, so he could still enjoy a comfortable glow when the deaf old housekeeper told him that he was the best-looking boy she'd ever seen. It had pleased him to be the lightest and youngest man on the first football squad. It pleased him when Dr. Dougal told him, at the end of a heated conference, that he could, if he wished, get the best marks in school. But Dr. Dougal was wrong. It was temperamentally impossible for Amory to get the best marks in school. Miserable, confined to bounds, unpopular with both faculty and students, that was Amory's first term. But at Christmas, he'd returned to Minneapolis, tight-lipped and strangely jubilant. Oh, I was sort of fresh at first, he told Frog Parker patronizingly. I got along fine, lightest man on the squad. You ought to go away to school, Froggy. It's great stuff. Incident of the well-meaning professor. On the last night of his first term, Mr. Margotson, the senior master, sent word to study hall that Amory was to come to his room at nine. Amory suspected that a vice was forthcoming, but he determined to be courteous because this Margotson had been kindly disposed toward him. His summoner received him gravely and motioned him to a chair. He hemmed several times and looked consciously kind, as a man will when he knows he's on delicate ground. Amory, he said, I've sent for you on a personal matter. Yes, sir. I've noticed you this year and I, I like you. I think you have the makings of a, a very good man. Yes, sir, Amory managed to articulate. He hated having people talk as if he were an admitted failure. But I've noticed, continued the older man blindly, that you're not very popular with the boys. No, sir. Amory licked his lips. Ah. I thought you might not understand exactly what it was they, uh, objected to. I'm going to tell you because I believe that when a boy knows his difficulties, he's better able to cope with them, to conform to what others expect of him. He hemmed again with delicate reticence and continued. They seem to think that you're uh, rather too fresh. Amory could stand no more. He rose from his chair, scarcely controlling his voice when he spoke. I know. Oh, don't you suppose I know? His voice rose. I know what they think. Do you suppose you have to tell me? He paused. I've got to go back now. Hope I'm not rude. He left the room hurriedly. In the cool air outside, as he walked to his house, he exulted in his refusal to be helped. That damn old fool, he cried wildly. As if I didn't know. He decided, however, that this was a good excuse not to go back to study hall that night. So, comfortably couched up in his room, 
he munched Nabisco's and finished the white company. Incident of the Wonderful Girl There was a bright star in February. New York burst upon him on Washington's birthday with the brilliance of a long-anticipated event. His glimpse of it, as a vivid whiteness against a deep blue sky, had left a picture of splendor that rivaled the dream cities in the Arabian Nights. But this time he saw it by electric light, and romance gleamed from the chariot race sign on Broadway, and from the women's eyes of the Aster, where he and young Paskert from St. Regis's had dinner. When they walked down the aisle of the theatre, greeted by the nervous twanging and discord of untuned violins, and the sensuous, heavy fragrance of paint and powder, he moved in a sphere of Epicurean delight. Everything enchanted him. The play was The Little Millionaire with George M. Cohen, and there was one stunning young brunette who made him sit with brimming eyes in the ecstasy of watching her dance. Oh, you wonderful girl, what a wonderful girl you are, sang the tenor, and Amory agreed silently but passionately. All your wonderful words thrill me through. The violin swelled and quavered on the last notes. The girl sank to a crumpled butterfly on the stage. A great burst of clapping filled the house. Oh, to fall in love like that, to the languorous, magic melody of such a tune. The last scene was laid on a roof garden, and the cellos sighed to the musical moon, while light adventure and facile, froth-like comedy flitted back and forth in the calcium. Amory was on fire to be an habitué of roof gardens, to meet a girl who should look like that, better, that very girl, whose hair would be drenched with golden moonlight, while at his elbow sparkling wine was poured by an unintelligible waiter. When the curtain fell for the last time, he gave such a long sigh that the people in front of him twisted round and stared and said aloud enough for him to hear, What a remarkable-looking boy. This took his mind off the play, and he wondered if he really did seem handsome to the population of New York. Paskert and he walked in silence toward their hotel. The former was the first to speak. His uncertain 15-year-old voice broke in and a melancholy strain on Amory's musings. I'd marry that girl tonight. There was no need to ask what girl he referred to. I'd be proud to take her home and introduce her to my people, continued Paskert. Amory was distinctly impressed. He wished he had said it instead of Paskert. It sounded so mature. I wonder about actresses. Are they all pretty bad? No, sir, not by a darn sight, said the worldly youth with emphasis, and I know that girl's as good as gold, I can tell. They wandered on, mixing in the Broadway crowd, dreaming on the music that eddied out of the cafes. New faces flashed on and off like myriad lights, pale or rouged faces, tired, yet sustained by a weary excitement. Amory watched them in fascination. He was planning his life. He was going to live in New York, and be known at every restaurant and cafe, wearing a dress suit from early evening to early morning, sleeping away the dull hours of the forenoon. Yes, sir, I'd marry that girl tonight. Heroic in general tone. October of his second and last year at St. Regis's was a high point in Amory's memory. 
The game with Grotten was played from three of a snappy, exhilarating afternoon, far into the crisp autumnal twilight, and Amory at quarterback, exhorting in wild despair, making impossible tackles, calling signals in a voice that had diminished to a hoarse, furious whisper, yet found time to revel in the blood-stained bandage around his head and the straining, glorious heroism of plunging, crashing bodies and aching limbs. For those minutes, courage flowed like wine out of the November dusk, and he was the eternal hero, one with the sea rover on the prow of a Norse galley, one with Roland and Horatius, Sir Nigel and Ted Coy, scraped and stripped into trim, and then flung by his own will into the breach, beating back the tide, hearing from afar the thunder of chairs. Finally, bruised and weary, but still elusive, circling an end, twisting, changing pace, straight-arming, falling behind the grotten goal with two men on his legs and the only touchdown of the game. The Philosophy of the Slicker From the scoffing superiority of sixth-form year and success, Amory looked back with cynical wonder on his status of the year before. He was changed as completely as Amory Blaine could ever be changed. Amory plus Beatrice plus two years in Minneapolis. These had been his ingredients when he entered St. Regis's. But the Minneapolis years were not a thick enough overlay to conceal the Amory plus Beatrice from the ferreting eyes of a boarding school. So St. Regis's had very painfully drilled Beatrice out of him and begun to lay down new and more conventional planking on the fundamental Amory. But both St. Regis's and Amory were unconscious of the fact that this fundamental Amory had not in himself changed. Those qualities for which he had suffered, his moodiness, his tendency to pose, his laziness, and his love of playing the fool, were now taken as a matter of course, recognized eccentricities in a star quarterback, a clever actor, and the editor of the St. Regis Tattler. It puzzled him to see impressionable small boys imitating the very vanities that had not long ago been contemptible weaknesses. After the football season, he slumped into dreamy content. The night of the pre-holiday dance, he slipped away and went early to bed for the pleasure of hearing the violin music cross the grass and come surging in at his window. Many nights he lay there dreaming awake of secret cafes in Montmartre where women delved in romantic mysteries with diplomats and soldiers of fortune while orchestras played Hungarian waltzes, and the air was thick and exotic with intrigue and moonlight and adventure. In the spring, he read L'Allegro by request and was inspired to lyrical outpourings on the subject of Arcady and the Pipes of Pan. He moved his bed so that the sun would wake him at dawn, that he might dress and go out to the archaic swing that hung from an apple tree near the sixth form house. Seating himself in this, he would pump higher and higher until he got the effect of swinging into the air, into a fairyland of piping satyrs and nymphs with the faces of fair-haired girls he passed in the streets of Eastchester. As the swing reached its highest point, Arcady really lay just over the brow of a certain hill where the brown road dwindled out of sight in a golden dot. He read voluminously all spring, beginning of his 18th year, The Gentleman from Indiana, The New Arabian Nights, The Morals of Marcus Orndine, The Man Who Was Thursday, which he liked without understanding, Stover at Yale, 
that became somewhat of a textbook. Dombey and Son, because he thought he really should read better stuff. Robert Chambers, David Graham Phillips, and E. Phillips Oppenheim complete. And a scattering of Tennyson and Kipling. Of all his class work, only L'Allegro, and some quality of rigid clarity and solid geometry, stirred his languid interest. As June drew near, he felt the need of conversation to formulate his own ideas, and to his surprise found a co-philosopher in Rahill, the president of the Sixth Form. In many a talk on the high road or lying belly down along the edge of the baseball diamond, or late at night with their cigarettes glowing in the dark, they thrashed out the questions of school, and there was developed the term slicker. Got tobacco, whispered Rahill one night, putting his head inside the door five minutes after lights. Sure, I'm coming in. Take a couple of pillows and lie in the window seat, why don't you? Amory sat up in bed and lit a cigarette while Rahill settled for a conversation. Rahill's favourite subject was the respective futures of the sixth form, and Amory never tired of outlining them for his benefit. Ted Converse, that's easy. You fill his exams, tutor all summer at Harstrom's, get into chef with about four conditions, and flunk out in the middle of the freshman year. Then he'll go west and raise hell for a year or so. Finally, his father will make him go into the paint business. He'll marry and have four sons, all boneheads. He'll always think St. Regis has spoiled him, so he'll send his sons to day school in Portland. He'll die of locomotive ataxia when he's 41, and his wife will give a baptizing stand, or whatever you call it, to the Presbyterian Church with his name on it. Hold up, Amory. That's too darn gloomy. How about yourself? I'm in a superior class. You are too. We're philosophers. I'm not. Sure you are. You've got a darn good head on you. But Amory knew that nothing, in the abstract, no theory or generality, ever moved Ray Hill until he stubbed his toe upon the concrete minutiae of it. Haven't, insisted Ray Hill. I let people impose on me here and don't get anything out of it. I'm the prey of my friends, damn it. Do their lessons, get them out of trouble, pay them stupid summer visits, and always entertain their kids' sisters, keep my temper when they get selfish, and then they think they pay me back by voting for me and telling me I'm the big man at St. Regis's. I want to go where everybody does their own work and I can tell people where to go. I'm tired of being nice to every poor fish in school. You're not a slicker, said Amory suddenly. A what? A slicker. What the devil's that? Well, it's something that... that there's a lot of them. You're not one, and neither am I, though I am more one than you are. Who is one? What makes you one? Amory considered. Why... Why, I suppose that the sign of it is when a fellow slicks his hair back with water. Like Carstairs? Yeah, sure. He's a slicker. They spent two evenings getting an exact definition. The slicker was good-looking or clean-looking. He had brains. Social brains, that is. And he used all means on the broad path of honesty to get ahead, be popular, admired, and never in trouble. He dressed well, was particularly neat in appearance, and derived his name from the fact that his hair was inevitably worn short, soaked in water or tonic, parted in the middle, and slicked back, as the current of fashion dictated. The slickers of that year had adopted tortoiseshell spectacles as badges of their slickerhood, and this made them so easy to recognise that Amory and Rahill never missed one, 
The slicker seemed distributed through school, always a little wiser and shrewder than his contemporaries, managing some team or other, and keeping his cleverness carefully concealed. Amory found the slicker most viable classification until his junior year in college, when the outline became so blurred and indeterminate that it had to be subdivided many times and became only a quality. Amory's secret ideal had all the slicker qualifications, but, in addition, courage and tremendous brains and talents. Also, Amory conceded him a bizarre streak that was quite irreconcilable to the slicker proper. This was a first real break from the hypocrisy of school tradition. The slicker was a definite element of success, differing intrinsically from the prep school big man. The slicker. Number one. Clever sense of social values. The big man. Inclined to stupidity and unconscious of social values. The slicker. Two. Dresses well. Pretends that dress is superficial, but knows that it isn't. The big man thinks dress is superficial and is inclined to be careless about it. The slicker, three, goes into such activities as he can shine in. The big man goes out for everything from a sense of duty. The slicker, four, gets to college and is, in a worldly way, successful. The big man gets to college and has a problematic future, feels lost without his circle, and always says that school days were happiest after all goes back to school and makes speeches about what St. Regis's boys are doing. The slicker, five, hair slicked. The big man, hair not slicked. Amory had decided definitely on Princeton, even though he would be the only boy entering that year from St. Regis's. Yale had a romance and glamour from the tales of Minneapolis, and St. Regis's men had been tapped for skull and bones. But Princeton drew him most with its atmosphere of bright colours and its alluring reputation as the pleasantest country club in America. Dwarfed by the menacing college exams, Amory's school days drifted into the past. Years afterwards, when he went back to St. Regis's, he seemed to have forgotten the successes of sixth form year, and to be able to picture himself only as the unadjustable boy who had hurried down corridors, jeered at his rabid contemporaries, mad with common sense. Good night.